This is Fine Music Radio and Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. My guest is Western Cape High Court Judge Owen Rogers, who, as you will discover, appears as adept with the violin and piano as he is with the law, according to supporters. Previously unsuccessful when interviewed for judicial appointment, which drew condemnation from the sections of the legal fraternity who considered him one of the country's top senior counsel, he was eventually appointed in 2012. And Judge Rogers has Cape Town in his blood. He matriculated from Weinberg Boys High School and graduated from the University of Cape Town. And he joined the Cape Bar in 1988, was conferred silk 11 years later, and has written critically on the institution of silk status, stating that it drove up legal fees, making justice inaccessible to the poor. He's also just published a book called Lawyers in Turmoil about the Jamison Raid lawyers. So we've got lots to talk about. Um, Judge Owen Rogers, welcome, and it's good to have you here. It's lovely to be with you this morning. I'm wanting to find out initially this music interest in you. I mean, being a music station, before we start talking about your career as a judge, music seems to have been an, a very important part of your life from very young. And I'm tempted to wonder why you didn't pursue a music career. Well, music certainly has been an important part of my life from the very beginning. Uh, my mother was a piano music teacher. She taught in the home. She also ran a church choir into which I was drawn at a very young age. Uh, a brother of mine who's about eight years older than me was extremely musical, a very good pianist, subsequently studied organ and uh, was the assistant organist to Barry Smith at St. George's Cathedral. He subsequently uh, married a lady from Norway and has been an organist in Norway for many years. Gosh. Uh, my older sister also studied uh, piano th through school and is a piano and music teacher at a primary school in Cape Town. So music is very much a part of my life. I went to Weinberg Boys Junior and High School. Now, in the days that I was at Weinberg, the high school was not one which valued cultural matters at all, <laughs> unfortunately. But he the said delicately. <laughs> but the junior school was very much the opposite. I was fortunate to be there at a time when Arnold Laurie was the principal. He, in fact, retired after 30 or 40 years at that school when I uh, completed Standard 5. He was himself a fair violinist, and he encouraged music and with his encouragement, I took up the violin from Standard 2. I had also started piano lessons in Standard 1, and I carried on with both of those during junior school. But in high school, I carried on with the violin uh, under his tutelage, and then for a couple of years also at the College of Music while I was at university. Uh, so music is definitely very much in my blood. But interestingly, all of that has stayed with you. you apparently, you still play the violin. Apparently, you're rehearsing it. Beethoven piano tree at the moment, and also you sing. Yes, I sometimes feel very sad when friends of mine who I know studied and became fairly proficient at their instruments just give up on it. I think once one has got over a certain hump in one's uh, musical career, one should, one should keep at it because it can provide so much uh, pleasure in later life. I think what often happens is perhaps as people get into high school and at university, it's, it's not regarded as cool and they give up on it and they never come back to it. Perhaps in my case, um, my, I didn't 
lose my classical music, but I still went through that phase of enjoying rock music, and I actually played in yes. a rock band <laughs> at high school, and subsequently as a university student, I earned some money semi-professionally by playing bass in a jazz ensemble. So I was able to have both musical outlets. I wanted to spring that on you, your rock side, but you, <laughs> you've brought it up because you've got that lovely name, which you must share with us, of the band you played in. Yes, some years ago... Um, Two or three of us got together. There seemed to be an interest in uh, rock music from the 50s and 60s. That's not really the rock music that was my favorite, but um, I was happy to join them, and we called ourselves the Strolling Bones, and we played around a bit. <laughs> Did you play professionally, uh, sort of professionally then? Y yes, not regularly. I wouldn't have, uh, but we, we had some paid gigs, a few mm -hmm. weddings and, and such things. Thank goodness you never let the violin go or the piano and that you're still working on them. But now you mentioned about people giving music up. I spoke about a trio earlier. Apparently you've got friends who are not professional but are jolly good players and you get together and rehearse. Yes. Um, it was previously a quartet. Our first violinist uh, left to go to Johannesburg, so now we're down to a trio. So I have to be promoted from the second to the first violin. Fortunately, the Beethoven trio we're working on is not particularly demanding as far as I can see for the violin. Um, the viola player is one of the singers in Vox, which we'll talk about, the choir mm. in which I sing. And the cellist is a very accomplished cellist who's a doctor but plays in his spare time. So we uh, meet at his house and uh, work through our music. Gosh, is this all a sort of antidote to the rigors of the judicial system? And we're going to get to that in a moment about how you switch to law. Certainly music provides a way of escaping from uh, the legal world because you can't play an instrument in an ensemble or sing in a choir um, without losing yourself in the music and yes, in the moment. Absolutely. And... Uh, since I'm a person who tends in my legal career to worry away at problems, not in the sense of being anxious about them, but the law is a passion of mine and the legal problems with which I am engaged tend to occupy my mind. So I think it's very healthy and pleasurable at the same time to be able to break away from that and lose myself in music. Let's break away because now I want to talk to you after your first piece of music um, about your switch to law and how, how you got to where you are now. And I see we've got some violin and piano music to begin, in fact. Yes, you will in fact see that uh, out of the pieces I've chosen, the violin features very strongly yes, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yes. Um, the first piece I've chosen is one of a set of three romances by Robert Schumann. He actually wrote these for the oboe, but I think they are as often performed for the, with the violin as the solo instrument and also clarinet. His publisher apparently said that he would like to publish them, stating that it, the, piece was, the, the three pieces were for oboe or violin or clarinet and piano. <laughs> Schumann said that, in fact, if he had written them for any instrument other than the oboe, they would have been different pieces. But in fact, I think they work beautifully for violin. Perhaps I've chosen this particular romance, not only because it is very lovely, but because it is within my own fairly limited technical <laughs> ability to play. So okay. it is one I have in fact played. 
one of the romances by Robert Schumann, one of three romances in that version, we have to say, for violin and piano. And who are we listening to? Um, there was uh, Pinker Zuckerman on the violin and his uh, very frequent accompanist, Mark Nykruch. Okay. Let me remind you that my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio is the Western Cape High Court Judge Owen Rogers. And as I said at the beginning, he's as adept with the violin and piano as he is with the law, according to your supporters. And I suppose a judge has both supporters and detractors. But I'd like to know how law took over music. Was it ever possible that music was going to be a career? No, I think in my case, I never seriously contemplated being a musician by profession, Um, partly because I actually never thought I was good enough. Uh, I really did love music, but I've always been conscious of technical limitations, and there were certain things that I thought I would never um, overcome (laughs) by more practice. Okay, (laughs) practice being the thing that makes perfect. So how did you move to law? Was that another interest of yours right from school days? Well, that was another thing in the home. My father was an attorney for many years in Cape Town. Uh, My oldest brother, not the one who was an organist, um, became an attorney and joined my father in the same firm. And after about 19 years, he moved to the bar. I was, in fact, at the bar before he moved to the bar. But law and discussion about law was always something in the home. It was, in fact, not the first course of study for which I enrolled at university, there seemed to be a thing when I matriculated in the 70s, perhaps it still prevails, that uh, medicine was the, was the uh, course for which you enrolled if you excelled at school and if your marks were good enough. So I enrolled for medicine and during the first week of orientation at UCT, I quickly realized that this was not for me. I shouldn't be choosing my uh, course of study on that basis. And I switched to law. Immediately? Immediately. My academic interests, apart from the law, were classics, um, Latin, ancient history. And there was an interesting uh, twist of events in that when I went into my second year, I began to think I would not pursue a career as a lawyer. I would actually become an academic in classics. And for that reason, I broke my university career in order to undertake what was compulsory in those days, national service. And I spent two years in national service, and my thinking was, I don't want to uh, learn all my Latin and ancient Greek and then forget it over two years in in the army. So I wanted to get that out of the way. So I got it out of the way, but by the time I came back, I decided to carry on with law. Although I did take a year off to do an honours in classics. And you, I, I saw somewhere uh, talking about Latin, you got quite a, a mark for Latin, didn't you? A couple of awards and things. Or what am I thinking yeah. of? Yes, um, I did. I was B.A. Po- cum laude, honours in Latin. Yes, I was quite bookish, but I, I loved Latin. And again, I spoke earlier about um, getting just far enough with a musical instrument to get over the hump where you can keep it for life and uh-huh. enjoy it. I always felt with Latin that if one could get over the hump of uh, the, the blockage which so many people seem to experience with studying Latin, it was, a, it was an extremely pleasant and um, stimulating subject. So, so I enjoyed that very much. But now how does that play a part in your life at the moment, Latin, classics, that sort of thing? 
I still have a, gra- a fair library of, of classics, and I fondly imagine that sometime I will uh, again find opportunity to mug up my Latin again mm-hmm. and possibly go back to reading some of it. That time hasn't yet arrived. When I studied Latin at university, it was compulsory for law graduates to have a year of Latin because our legal system, being the Roman Dutch law, has some of its sources in Latin. Um, But in practice, nobody makes any sensible use of Latin nowadays. Very occasionally, when some interesting topic arises, which requires one to go back to what we call the old authorities, I sometimes look at the Latin just for interest, but most of the stuff we use has been translated into English or Afrikaans anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, you know, how much Latin does go on in the courts today, but you've answered that. But um, for some reason, I thought that it was there more. I mean, it disappeared from the church, from the Catholic Church, in a sense, in this country and most countries, didn't it, Latin? Yes, and even Latin maxims are now discouraged as being either pretentious or exclusive or exclusionary. Mm. So one tries to avoid Latin phrases yes. in judgments. Just it, it often lends an air of mystique to something which is much more straightforward if you just say it in English. Okay, that's very <laughs> practical of you. Uh, let's have another piece of music, Owen Rogers and Brahms. You're choosing my favorites here. Brahms is a composer I absolutely love. When I was growing up, at first, I regarded his sound as a bit turgid, but then I, I, I hadn't been exposed to a great deal of it. But when I came back in middle and later life to Brahms, I just realized how many wonderful melodies he has. And um, the I've chosen the first movement of his third violin sonata in D minor. Um, I have actually played that through with one of your other presenters who we were talking about a little early, earlier, Tony Westwood, who is yes. a very accomplished pianist. But this sonata is, in fact, beyond my technical capabilities. And nobody who heard me play it would say that I was a, as adept <laughs> on the violin as I am at the law. <laughs> There's a couple of amusing stories about the Brahms. The first is that um, you may recall that some years ago, Pinkus Zuckerman, well, I think he's visited South Africa on a, on a couple of occasions. He's been in this very studio on People of Note. Now, he gave a recital at Artscape, mm-hmm. and the last piece on his program was the Brahms, violin, the third violin sonata. And somewhat embarrassingly, after the end of the first movement, a lady emerged from the wings with a large bouquet of flowers, evidently thinking it was the end of the concert. <laughs> but he was very gracious about it. I was in London with my wife a few years ago, and we had booked a concert at the Wigmore where... Elena Ibragamova was playing a very fine Russian violinist, and this was on the program which attracted me to it. And it was announced at the beginning of the concert that her accompanist had taken ill, but she had very graciously agreed instead to perform four of Bach's unaccompanied violin sonatas and partitas. Now, that was fine for me, but I must say my wife was very much on edge by the time we came to the presto of the first of the four. Oh, the first one, gosh. So, um, anyway, this is the first movement. Obviously, I would love the whole sonata, but there won't be time for that. We we want to hear what more you have to say. So, um, here it is, the first movement of the violin sonata number three by Brahms.
Music by Brahms, the first movement of his third violin sonata, the one in D minor. We heard Itzhak Pellman violin, Daniel Barenboim piano. We've got fine artists here. The choice of my guest on People of Note this week, and that is Western Cape High Court Judge Owen Rogers, whom, as we discovered, is as much in love with music as he is with law. Can you fall in love with law, Owen? Yes. I'm <laughs> passionate about the law. Are you? Indeed. So when I have to write a judgment, which is currently my position. Previously, it would have been formulating an argument as an advocate, understanding the facts, sorting them out, bringing order to what might be a large mass of disparate material, and then applying the law to that and coming to a solution is something I find very stimulating. So although I work very long hours, I don't find it um, tedious. Those judgments that you put together, for those of us who might not know much about law, interesting what you've said, the the advocate does the, did you say the arguments, and then you do, you collate everything to form the judgment. Yes, the role of the advocate is to argue everything that can properly be urged for his client or her client. Um, and so the advocate doesn't have to necessarily think that the arguments are correct as long as they can fairly be made. There's a limit. I've written on the subject also about the ethics of the hopeless case. I think perhaps people do not realize in this country that there comes a p point where it's improper to argue something because it is so hopeless. And sometimes cases get strung out because people take completely unmeritorious points. But subject to that, the advocate does everything he or she can to advance the case of his client. And that is what I had to do for 25 years as an advocate. What I find liberating about being a judge is that instead of having to do the best you can, although you do not necessarily think it is the best um, legal result in the case or necessarily the correct one, what is liberating about being a judge is that your sole function is to come to what you consider to be the correct answer in law. You, you don't have an agenda. Mm. And that I, I find that freedom uh, in other words, you're not on the side of your client. You don't have to fight for your client anymore. You're completely um, autonomous. You're completely above sides. Yes, and and that is why I would say that although I had a stimulating career at the bar, um, I find being a judge more satisfying than being an advocate. Mm -hmm. Also because you ultimately produce something which, not always, but sometimes has some role uh, in the development of the law and can continue to be referred to by other lawyers in the future as clarifying or establishing a particular legal principle. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you think that one of the essential aspects of a judge is to be a good listener um, because you have to listen a lot, don't you, and consider and contemplate and sort out in your head what's going on. Yes, judges differ in their ability to listen particularly when advocates are arguing, we have to listen to evidence sometimes, depending on the form of proceeding, so we have to listen to witnesses. There, I think most judges know that they shouldn't talk too much, they shouldn't ask too many questions. But once the advocates start arguing, there are some judges who will simply listen, and there are other judges who are quite interventionist and don't want to hear about things that they understand and or think they understand, mm -hmm. um, they would rather get to the difficult points and they will debate with, um, with the advocates and put their difficulties to the advocates. Um, I probably fall into that latter category of being an interventionist yes, right, uh, right. judge, 
during the course of argument. Uh-huh. And when you when you then go to do your judgment and write up your judgment, I read somewhere that you've got a reputation of not delaying too much. I mean, how long does it take? Is it a lot of hard work, a, a slog to use a... Yes, I think perhaps what many people don't understand is that, at least in this country, a judge is not given time off from other cases to write a judgment, so that if I finish a case, say, at the end of today, I will almost certainly be allocated another case to start tomorrow, so that one should or generally will be in court most days of the week. So the writing of judgments happens in the evening, over weekends, or sometimes the case finishes a bit earlier in the day. So it is quite hard work, and judges will have different ways of preparing a judgment. I tend, in advance of a hearing, to have made very detailed notes, a chronology of events, to have researched the legal points. So I have a fair idea in advance of the argument. The argument then helps to clarify my thinking, and I tend not to sketch out in written form the uh, structure of my judgment. I tend just to start talking, and when I say talking, I I use voice recognition uh, software to dictate my judgments. I don't rely on a secretary and my own typing skills are poor. So that's how I produce a judgment. And generally, I find it falls into place as I talk. And an interesting skill that I think comes from dictating judgments in that way is that at least in some of the simpler cases, one can actually give what we call, and here is a bit of Latin, an extempore judgment, which means immediately at the conclusion of the case, while the advocates are still sitting there, you are ready to give a judgment, and you simply start talking in court. It's a skill that I think has largely been lost in the modern era, but perhaps up to 50 or 60 years ago, most judgments would have been given in that way. And I think judges were adept at immediately committing their thoughts to a spoken form at the end of a case without having to adjourn to make notes because they were used to having to make um, addresses, say, to a jury at the end of a case while they were barristers. I think the the skill of of speaking fluently on one's feet has perhaps been lost. <laughs> Indeed. Well, here you are in um, a radio studio speaking eloquently, Owen. And when you um, do you dictate into your cell phone or what do you do? Well, I have a headset, a little headset like the sports commentators have. That's how I have it. Uh, you can just use the inbuilt microphone on your laptop. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, so it's a simple. It's a simple thing. Yes, I use Dragon as one of the well-known uh, voice recognition um, software programs and it's extremely efficient. Right. It, it, it comes up uh, the, the, the important thing about it is that instead of having to wait for something to come back from a secretary which one used to have to do when one dictated on um, tapes uh, uh, is that it comes up as you talk on the screen in front of you mm-hmm. so if you want to change something or format it you can go onto the keyboard and just do it there and then. It's amazing, isn't it? What will they think of next? Um, And when you do have to work in the evenings, if you do have to write something out, would you do that at home or do you sit in your office with a little lamp on till midnight? Uh, My preference is to work at home. I don't like to be in chambers um, after hours if I can avoid it. (laughs) Which makes sense. Let's have another piece of music. This is something different. Dave Grusin, whom we know as a film composer mostly, Mountain Dance. Yes, so I said I had an interest in rock and jazz music and I played the bass guitar. Dave Grusin, I suppose, would broadly fit into the category of um, contemporary jazz, although his his film music is very tuneful. Um, this particular piece 
was not composed as film music. It was uh, released first in 1979, but it was subsequently chosen as as um, a significant piece of music in the film Falling in Love, which 1984 with uh, Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro. Um, what I find interesting about this piece, well, apart from the excellent sound, I don't know, I hope it will come through when it is played um, over the radio, but it was one of the first jazz pieces to be record in, recorded in a totally digital format. So it has a wonderfully clean sound. But what you will also hear is there's a middle section with an ostinato motif played on the bass guitar. Now, an ostinato is just a, a repeated line. Actually, that word ostinato is an interesting one, ultimately from the Latin, but in Italian, it just means stubborn. Oh. It means it sticks there no matter what sort of improvisation is going on right. on top. So there's it's a lovely word, actually, and it describes what happens very accurately in the music, doesn't it? Yes. That sort of insistent kind of repetition. So there's this ostinato passage above which Dave Grusin um, uh, improvises first on piano, then on synthesizer, and then on answering piano and synthesizer. Okay, let's, this is called a mountain dance.
Well, there you are. That's music by Dave Grusin called Mountain Dance. And it was the third choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio, the Western Cape High Court Judge Owen Rogers. Now, I mentioned right at the beginning, Owen, that you've just written a book called Lawyers in Turmoil, the Johannesburg Conspiracy of 1895, um, which has been described by Justice Edwin Cameron as a dense, engrossing, and vivid historical account of the lives and times of the lawyers involved in the infamous Jamison Raid of 1896. Quite a subject to tackle for your first book. Yes, well, the way I got onto it is this. Uh, a few years ago, somebody gave me a Christmas present. I shouldn't say somebody because they'll murder me. My in-laws <laughs> gave me a Christmas present, which was Charles von Onselen's book, The Cowboy Capitalist. Um, as you know, Van Onselen is one of our leading historians writing for public consumption. And he wrote this um, biography of um, John Hayes Hammond, who was one of the four ringleaders in the uh, Jamison Raid conspiracy. He was a mining engineer who was attra fr attracted from America to Johannesburg by Rhodes, who was at that time prime minister in the Cape, but to be the mining engineer for Rhodes's gold company in the Transvaal um, gold fields. And he was reputed to be the highest paid mining engineer in the world at that time. Anyway, he was one of the conspirators. As I read von Onselen's book, the names of lawyers flitted across the pages. And it struck me that although some of the names I recognized, some of them not, uh, I only knew them perhaps as judges from old law reports or from textbooks. And the thought occurred to me, how was it that these people were being caught up in events which, however insignificant they may seem now, were of huge importance at the time? You must remember that the British Empire was still very much in existence then um, as a dominant world phenomenon. And the Jamison Raid made the headlines across all the colonies of Britain, not, not only in Britain itself. So I wondered how the people got caught up in it. So it, I thought I would do a bit of research into these lawyers, uh, maybe just with a view to writing an article for one of the law journals. But I collected more and more material, and then somebody suggested, why not make it a book? And that is how it landed <laughs> up. And I must tell you that you said at the beginning, uh, before we went on air, that this was a, 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 a substantial tome. Yes, it's not exactly thin. It's, it's not thin, <laughs> but it, it was thicker. All I can okay. say, it was thicker before I started trimming it. Okay. Uh, but what I would say is that although its subject matter uh, comprises lawyers, um, it is not a book about the law as such. The only legal aspects concern the, the trial of the um, Jamison Raid conspirators um, in Pretoria in April 1896. But I would say it's more a book about history and um, human nature. It's, it's largely biographical of the of the key characters. And I was particularly intrigued by the fact that, so I found out as I did my research, that the people that were involved in these events, the lawyers particularly, but others as well, they were not only very able, but they were very young at the time. And I tried to put myself in their position. What was I doing when I was just 30 or 32? Would I be in the midst of events like this? And I thought, no. Mm. But here they were.
Yeah, gosh. But it must have been then for you great fun doing the research. It sounds the way you're talking about it, that you were discovering all sorts of things on routes. I know you were very complimentary about the archives in Pretoria, was it, somewhere? Yes. So um, I went to the Pretoria archives on a number of occasions. The officials in Kruger's Republic before the Boer War were, were great record keepers. So there's an enormous amount of material there, although it's not always easy to find what you want. Mm. But yes, I paid a number of visits there. The staff there were, were always very helpful. But it's hard to research there because you can only request 25 volumes at a time. And you don't know whether what you're looking for is going to be found there. In one of those 25. <laughs> so, and then I also visited the special collections that UCT has in its African libraries um, section. The National Library has a very good archives or special collection section and I also um, visited Vits. So yes, I was very interested. So for example, in the Pretoria archives, I found the petitions for clemency which the lawyers and others wrote after they had been imprisoned. And it was interesting. Everything there was handwritten. It wasn't typed. Mm. And I could actually see these people as they were sitting in prison writing out their petitions and learning things which I don't think other historians had yet picked up upon about the events of the raid. I spoke about being in prison. Four of the ringleaders were in fact sentenced to death, but they were reprieved almost immediately and then every all of them were sentenced to a, a period. It started out as two years imprisonment and there was this process of seeking mitigation. But uh, would you mind if I read you a short passage? I'd love you to. From the author himself. From the author himself. This is after the men have been sentenced to prison in April, at the end of April 1896. So they are deposited in the Pretoria prison, um, and they are hoping to get their two-year sentences uh, reduced. Um, and while they are sitting there, and I described the rather unpleasant circumstances in which they are kept, um, I then say this, or write this. One bright exception to the tedium of prison life was a visit from a 60-year-old Samuel Clemens, better known by his pen name, Mark Twain. This famous gentleman, who had started his career as a journalist, expressed relief that there was only one member of that profession among the prisoners. He expressed no surprise that lawyers were well represented in the prison population. He remarked that prison life was, from some points of view, an ideal existence, instancing the great works of literature written by Bunyan and Cervantes while in jail. The dream of his life, he said, had been to get incarcerated, quote, but whenever I have committed anything, there have never been any witnesses except myself, and my reputation for veracity was not sufficient to get me convicted without corroborating evidence, close quote. There was no place where a man could secure such interrupted quiet as in jail. He was sure that the longer they stayed there, the more the charm would grow on them. Although the prisoners were not inclined to view their imprisonment in this philosophical light, the case was, declared Twain, so plain that in his forthcoming interview with Kruger, he would endeavor to have their sentences lengthened. Gosh, where did you find that? That's a lovely piece to have found in one of the archives. Um, where did you find that? Th this was contained partly in um, the reminiscences of a doctor who was one of the prisoners and partly in a some letters which were published in the contemporary newspapers okay. of the time. Well, just listening to that from your own book, Lawyers in Turmoil, makes me think, as you said earlier, it's not a law book. It it's, could be of general interest to people who are interested in history. Yes. And the reason why I chose the subtitle, The Johannesburg Conspiracy of 1895, is that 
those who know something of this era of South African history tend always to speak of the Jamison Raid. Mm. But, of course, the, the main events were focused in Johannesburg, and the conspiracy was hatched in Johannesburg, but with the help of Rhodes, who was the prime minister in the Cape, and possibly with the assistance of Chamberlain in England. But the role of Jamison was simply to cross the border with a, a force of armed men to support a conspiracy that was meant to – a revolution that was meant to start in Johannesburg. So this very much focuses on the RAND, on the events of um, – and things that happened in Johannesburg and Pretoria. It is not concerned with the military side of Jamison's incursion. I see. Okay. It's called Lawyers in Turmoil. Uh, by Owen Rogers. And Owen, I think we need to take another piece of music now. And Shostakovich lurking here, a violin concerto. Yes. Um, Shostakovich, I came to relatively late in life, well, perhaps in my middle years. Um, I was at a concert at the Baxter um, Concert Hall. Um, it was part of the concert series, and I think it was the Jerusalem String Quartet were playing. The last uh, piece on their program was one of Shostakovich's quartets and the last movement as is typical with Shostakovich was an extremely slow movement. It was played by the quartet without any vibrato. It was spellbinding and when the music faded away, when the last notes faded away, I have never known such a lengthy period of silence before the audience started their applause, almost as if nobody wanted to break the magic. Mm. And so I began to explore Shostakovich, and I must say that his first violin concerto is is one of my favorites. Um, it's got, I spoke about Ostinato a little earlier. Well, uh, Passagalia is, a, is, is based on an Ostinato theme, uh, a bass theme, and perhaps the most famous movement from this concerto is the third movement, which is a Passagalia. It then goes into a, a gigantic cadenza and then straight into the final movement which I have chosen, which is the um, burlesque. And this piece was dedicated to and composed with David Oystruck in mind, who also assisted in the formulation of the violin part. And when Oystruck saw that at the end of this mighty cadenza, the violin was expected to start playing right at the beginning of the last movement, he said, Dimitri, you must at least give me a few seconds to wipe my brow. <laughs> and so you will hear that the first eight bars of the burlesque, the theme is introduced by the orchestra, and the soloist only joins them after eight bars. And our soloist here is Maxim Vengerov.
Shostakovich, there's the final movement of his first violin concerto, a burlesque, and you heard Maxim Vengerov with the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Rostropovich, two Russians there in London, and the choice of my guests, the Western Cape High Court Judge Owen Rogers, and Owen, we've run out of time, I have to tell you, it's been fascinating listening to you, but I want to come back to your singing career, we've discussed your legal career and all that, and your violin and you have sung in various choirs, and then you joined Vox, and Vox is very special to us here at Fine Music Radio. What was it that attracted you to Vox among all the choirs in Cape Town? What I um, didn't like so much about the Cape Philharmonia, which was the choir I had sang in previously, was that, first of all, it's a very large choir, and the result of that is that there's a lot of note bashing because quite a few members of the choir do not read music. Mm. What attracted me... Uh, to Vox was that there were some requirements for um, musical reading and and for those who perhaps uh, do not have musical theory and musical notation uh, that much to the fore uh, there is a strong expectation that you will have prepared the music in advance of rehearsals so that rehearsals become um, a time for making music rather than just for learning notes and that, coupled with the fact that it is a smaller choir, um, attracted me to it and has kept me there. I find it um, absolutely fulfilling. I think there are few things as pleasurable as ensemble music making. And to do it in a choir of like-minded people um, is a rare opportunity. And under the intense direction of John Woodland. John Woodland, I think, is a very special leader because he manages to instill discipline somehow to convey to a wide range of people, some of them as young as himself, mm. some of them older than I am, perhaps already in their 70s, like Leslie Jennings. Right, right. Um, and all of them uh, uh, respect him and expect, uh, respect his rules, but he's also very inclusive and encouraging um, of his members. Gosh, you have a very fulfilling life, Owen, by the sounds of things, not only at in court, but at home um, and in your various music groups. But we have to stop now. So thank you very much for getting time out of court and coming to chat to us here in the studio. And I'd like to remind our listeners that your book is called Lawyers in Turmoil. And Owen Rogers was my guest. He's a Western Cape High Court judge and certainly whet my appetite to have a look at that book. Owen, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure talking with you.
Thank you.